Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows Weekly Threat Intelligence Podcast. Nailed it. That was amazing. Good job. That was awesome. What's up, everybody? Harrison Van Riper here, back with another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows Weekly Threat Intelligence Podcast. Joining me this week is Alex Giriku. Alex, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, also joining on the line is Casey. Casey, how are you? Hi there. Great to see all of your lovely faces. I know, right? We're all remote. We're, we get, we're using video and we're using the beauty of technology. And then also yeah. joining us is Rick Holland, CISO of Digital Shadows. Rick, how are you? Howdy, everybody. Obviously, this week, we're all still remote, uh, as is probably most of the workforce right now, um, dealing with this whole COVID situation. So this week, you know, we've been putting out a lot of content, and we wanted to start off with kind of a, uh, an intro into one of the blogs that we uh, kind of covered this week. Um, and so, Alex, you're going to give a pretty brief summary about that and just what it's all about and everything. So we have a blog that uh, should be out now. Uh, if not, it'll be out pretty soon. But it looks at the uh, threat to specific organizations in different verticals uh, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, specifically the ones that are either most at risk for being affected or the ones that might be uh, most popular being targeted by cyber criminals. Um, we'll try to keep this a little bit short because I think most of you are probably going to be a little bit burnt out and we want to talk about some more fun things. So. So in this one, we outline that industries like healthcare, financial services, uh, medical suppliers and manufacturing, as well as government and media outlets are probably going to be the ones that are most likely to have more challenges uh, throughout this pandemic. If you look at healthcare organizations, you know, resourcing, staff, all of those, they're already stretched and with the current response and any kind of cyber attack would probably amplify the struggle that they're already facing. And we've seen a couple of attacks already, right? There was the, um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services suffered a DDoS attack um, a couple of weeks ago. And they claimed that it didn't really interrupt their networks or their ability to function, but that still outlines the potential impact that kind of a more devastating attack could have on a critical healthcare organization. Yeah, and I mean, like, that's really the last thing that any healthcare organization really needs to be dealing with right now is any yeah. any sort of DDoS or whether that be like a ransomware or something like that really the just does not need to be going on right now. And actually, that goes to a point that, um, you know, has kind of been reported this week that there's this big, you know, coalition of um, kind of cybersecurity people and experts coming together and trying to deter against that activity, specifically targeting uh, healthcare organizations. I mean, that group mentality is, is really good. I, I like that kind of initiative. <laughs> I think it can be really effective. Yeah. So why do we think that, you know, these, these four that you've, these four kind of sectors that you've um, outlined, wh why do we think that those are going to be the most, uh, you know, at risk of being attacked? Yeah. Well, so healthcare, I think it's a little bit more obvious than some of the others, but if you look at financial service organizations, so places like banks, we've had a lot of volatility um, in the stock market over the past couple of weeks. And if you think about some organizations that are already hard pressed with their staff being remote, and then they have to face these, uh, the stock issues, threat actors might look at them as being a little bit more vulnerable right now. So they could be increasingly targeted by things like spear phishing or ransomware. And what's interesting, something that I've really not seen on this kind of scale before is that group, ransomware groups like Doppelpamer and, and Maze have come out and said that, yes, we're not going to explicitly target any of these healthcare organizations. And if we do, by accident, we'll give them the decryption key for free. And that's something that I found really interesting. 
Yeah, especially, you know, and it, that's also not to say that it, you know, attacks might not happen. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a good thing for those groups to come out and say that, but at the same time, you know, they're still cyber criminal groups. So it's like, that still may take place. They're just kind of saving face at the, at the, at the forefront. And they're not the only cyber criminal groups out there, right? Not everyone has yeah. to follow their lead. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, we're kind of touching on this and going to the point of, you know, exploiting these fears and, and, you know, situations that people deal with natural disasters obviously comes to mind. Um, this is something that we see a lot with cybercrime and, and, you know, fraud actors who try to take advantage of the situations of the, of the day, right. Of, of the world where everybody's kind of sitting, uh, at certain points. Um, so, but this is, this is definitely something that we've seen before. So this is kind of like an extension of that, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I mean, it's not even just natural disasters, even global health emergencies like Ebola a couple of years ago, there were phishing emails that still, um, spoofed the, the world health organization. And that's something that we're seeing again now. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, be sure to check out that blog. Uh, it should be up either today or sometime this week. Um, and we will put a link to it within the show notes. Uh, and speaking of phishing and phishing emails, uh, Alex and I actually did a webinar today um, that will, there will be a recording of it if you weren't able to attend, but it was all about our phishing research that we've talked about before on the podcast. Um, basically the ecosystem of, of phishing and how those attacks kind of uh, formulate within the cyber criminal uh, spaces. So uh, be sure to check that out as well. And we'll have a link to that. All right. So moving on, a different resource that we tried to put together, you know, sort of stemming out of this idea that a lot of people are working from home now, but also just, you know, more broadly, that's where the workforce is really moving towards uh, for the future. So working more remotely. So we wanted to put together a little resource that was basically a threat model of a remote worker. Um, so, so Rick, could you give us kind of like a level set as to, you know, what a threat model actually is and, you know, why is it useful for organizations? A lot of times, historically, when people have talked about threat models, they're thinking about threat models of applications. Microsoft has a lot of documentation on how you threat model an application. Um, in the more broad sense, when you look at a threat model or the way that we'll look at it for Digital Shadows customers, is let's say you take a particular vertical, let's say financial services. We have a lot of financial services um, companies, albeit that's a broad vertical because there's a lot of subsets in it. Uh, but you're looking at what are the threats uh, to that particular vertical, people doing account takeovers to go after retail banking customers and things along those lines. MITRE has a threat model definition that I like uh, for those that aren't familiar with it. And it, it's, it's read as a cyber threat model captures information about potential means of cyber attack on an enterprise's operations through its computer system and networks that it must be prepared to withstand or defend against. I like that model versus a lot of the application specific ones. I think one of the key things in threat modeling that you want to do is you want to come up with countermeasures and controls. One of the reasons I like threat modeling from a security operations perspective is it should hopefully help you drive your investment. So if I do a threat model and I know who's likely to attack me and I know the types of TTPs that they would use, I could potentially invest in security tools that give me better visibility um, or prevention uh, against whatever their techniques are. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, what, what we've done in this situation is kind of make a threat model for the remote worker. So, you know, what are all the threats and what are the mitigation things that you can do for remote work? Um, 
So Casey, why don't we run through that a little bit? What were the main kind of threat actors and motivations that we identified and um, you know put into put into the to the model? Yeah, for sure. So throughout this report, we hit on the different threat actors, like you mentioned, the different threats, and then how we can combat it or mitigate it. So going back to um, threat actors, you're going to first have cyber or organized crime. So those are folks who are basically preying on this new situation that we're working on, where people are working from home, their attack surfaces are much larger than what they're used to whenever they're on site. So they're taking advantage of that and kind of relying on different processes or different systems being less secure than they usually are. Um, moving from there, we have the your run-of-the-mill fraudsters. So it's highly likely that these folks are going to be opportunistic as they usually are and go after uh, different you know, individuals or organizations by exploiting the COVID-19 outbreak. The, the next one would be your insiders. And this could be accidental insider uh, or malicious insider, but probably in this scenario, it's more of the accidental insider. There's an employee that's working in a new environment. They're not comfortable with it. They don't know it. Uh, they may have to click on something that they're not used to clicking on. So they may just make a mistake. Um, so we definitely need to consider someone that is uh, well-meaning, uh, but because of the complexity of the new work environment might make a mistake that puts the org at risk. Yeah, for sure. And then moving on to the fourth one, you have hacktivists. So just because we're all moving to remote work doesn't mean that attackers are going to reinvent the wheel. They generally prefer to take the path of least resistance. So with that considered, phishing attacks will consider or continue to evolve, um, especially with end users being work from home and not having as many uh, security processes available as they would at work. Um, so they can definitely be targeted more easily. Uh, the fifth one is going to be state actors. So this COVID-19 thing, it affects everyone, even government workers and critical infrastructure entities. So these are going to be top targets for state actors because of the wealth of information that they can gain. Um, so these operations are expected to increase since users will continue to have, you know, access to restricted or sensitive information. So those are the main threat actors and, uh, you know, the motivations that we kind of put into this model. Um, we had six, you know, specific cyber threats that we listed out within the model itself. Um, so why don't we get a, just a brief rundown of that? Casey and I can highlight a few and then you guys can read the blog for more detail. Um, one of them that stands out to me, which is not some elite hacker one, is an employee losing their laptop. Uh, or even further, something, a, a laptop just breaking. Uh, since I run IT here as well, it's one of the things we're thinking about is how do you repair, break, fix, replace a lost laptop if someone has to leave, although with the lockdowns, maybe they're not. So, so that's definitely an interesting challenge for those responsible for IT in the world is how are you going to fix stuff when things go wrong and you can't be on site with the employee. Uh, and yeah, and then the other one is attacks on availability. So we're going to have an increased dependency on remote access solutions, so VPNs. And that can definitely affect the impact of a specific attack. I mean, at this point in time, internet traffic is, higher internet traffic is to be expected, especially during this COVID-19 outbreak. So denial of service attacks also might be uh, more likely to be successful and then also may have a higher impact as well. I think about services like Okta, or ping different single sign-on services that are in the cloud. Of course, they'll have a lot of resiliency, but I would worry about those getting taken offline and then keeping my staff from being able to access um, online services. Or if people just wanted to go after and target your Zooms or your Cisco WebExes, 
um, or your log bins of the world. I, I would just, I, for me personally, I'm very interested in tracking the availability. Uh, actually, I'm using Shadow Search to do this, you know, as a customer, eat your own barbecue, as I like to joke around. You know, we have our, our main SaaS applications plugged into Shadow Search. So if something happens to someone that, that we uh, are using internally, at least Shadow Search will alert us and maybe give us a heads up on it. It's interesting that you mentioned Zoom as well, because I mean, this week we also saw, you know, that that reporting of uh, people going around doing Zoom bombs uh, and like jumping into people's rooms, like huge, massive groups of people jumping into Zoom rooms that, you know, just random, randomly. And then, um, you know, it shows how much reliability that we have onto uh, these remote services right now. I've heard, uh, I hadn't heard Zoom bombs. I've heard uh, Zoom walking. Or war, war zooming? No, war zooming. I heard and war then, love that. yeah, war zooming. And then I was just thinking it's kind of like a flash mob, yeah, but with zoom. So f- flash zooming, zoom, yeah. zoom flash, flash zoom. So I don't want to spoil the whole blog, but um, Casey and Rick, why don't you each give uh, just one example of the security controls that we included within the model? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, it's something I've tweeted about. I don't know, maybe a month ago or something, but the uh, uh, increased focus on identity and access management. And I just used the example with Ping and Okta uh, as uh, single sign-on solutions, you know, multi-factor authentication solutions as well, um, being a very good control of, A, you want availability of those services, but having good controls in place. I think one of the things uh, that I was tweeting about was that I think COVID-19 in general is going to drive adoption of zero trust and having you know the user is the perimeter, the employee and where the employee working is a new perimeter. So making sure that you control and have visibility into how they access, when they access, you know, multiple factors for authentication. I think that's absolutely uh, one of the top things I'm interested in when it comes to trying to mitigate risk of a remote workforce. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with you. Um, One of the ones that I really wanted to hit on and something that we have kind of continuously hit on during different podcasts is the continuous asset management program. So that's really something that you always want to focus your asset management, configuration management, and change management. Those are all massive points to take note on whenever we are in a changing or evolving situation, or even whenever things go back to normal. So on the side of endpoint security hygiene, making sure that both corporate and personal endpoints are going to be included in that continued asset management program. Also enforcing your latest patches, managing vulnerable software, and then controlling access to any corporate resources. Awesome. This is a pretty hefty and, and a good resource for a lot of people right now. Um, you know, it obviously extends beyond just uh, this COVID outbreak, but it also, um, you know, the workforce is moving more remotely. So uh, it's definitely something that we uh, just kind of wanted to give out to the rest of the community. You can find this threat model uh, within our COVID resources page on Digital Shadows, which we'll drop a link to uh, in the show notes, but basically it's, it's a, a one-stop kind of centralized resource that you can go to and see all the content that we at Digital Shadows have put out uh, over the last few weeks and uh, will continue to put out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so be sure to check that out. So going back to cybercrime and, you know, kind of more general dark webby things, um, we put out another blog this week that was all about Kapusta. Uh, so Alex, tell me a little bit about what Kapusta is. I know that it means cabbage in russia and also colloquially used for money oh well there you go so tell me tell me more about what kapusta is so (laughs) 
<laughs> I love the Capusta logo. You should check it out on the blog. It's this smiling cabbage, um, looks so friendly. But there's this threat actor that's behind this new service called Capusta World, and they've been on a lot of the different main uh, Russian language cyber criminal forums, just advertising their offerings. And it gives us insight into the way that these cyber criminal organizations function. So just like normal organizations, they also have, you know, go to market strategies that they need to promote their different offerings. And so for Capusta, they have mainly two different offerings. Uh, one of them just offers account credentials and the other offers an information lookup service, which we've uh, written about previously uh, called ProBiv. And essentially, you can pay to have someone who more often than not has an insider link into a company and give them some information on an individual. And then they'll come back and they'll say, hey, this is all of the other information that we have from this individual from this organization. And that's something that's pretty popular in the Russian landscape. And for Kapusta, it's pretty cheap. So it's about 800 rubles. It's like 12 US dollars. So essentially, somebody could go onto the site and look at what they have. And then um, you could go in and then request more information or, or additional information if you don't see it on the website, right? Yeah. And if, if you're looking for accounts, I mean, they have a customer service team, Kapusta. So it's the Kapusta support team. If you can't really find the accounts that you need, then they'll try their best to find it on their own, which that kind of customer service we, we're all accustomed to, you know? Right, right. And yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's funny that you say, you know, that they have their own marketing strategy and everything. <laughs> I'm looking through the blog right now, and there's just like the smiling cabbage, just like enticing you to come in, and you know, it, it's it looks like a like a normal website would who ha who would have like a little icon or little mascot. It's great for branding. So you, yeah, you uh, recognize that image and you know what it is. The little uh, cabbage reminds me of Clippy. <laughs> exactly. Old school. Old school. That's right. That's right. Uh, so yes, yeah, so be sure to go check that out. Did we mention that it's a it's a Russian language site as well? Yep, it's 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 prevalent on a bunch of different Russian language sites. So it's not just limited to one cybercriminal forum. It's on a bunch of different ones. So we've seen it on XSS, for example, and Exploit. Gotcha. Sticking within the Russian cybercriminal landscape, uh, there was a there was a news story from last week um, that. We commented on our, our good friend at uh, CyberScoop, Jeff Stone, reached out and uh, we had a little discussion about it. There was a law enforcement operation that was conducted by the FSB, and basically it, it arrested about 30 members of a cyber criminal group. Uh, they don't name the group specifically, uh, but they do name the individuals throughout uh, their various court filings. Um, but basically, the individuals had, had gained you know, some unauthorized access to a bunch of different uh, financial institutions. Uh, their customers. So basically going in uh, to customer accounts and stealing the uh, credit card and debit card information, and then basically reselling that through uh, shops uh, that they've set up on their own. And so they set up about 90 or so of these uh, online stores. We detected a couple of different discussions uh, of the arrest on, on forums like XSS and, you know, some other carding forums. But this is a fairly interesting operation because, you know, they said that it was spread out across 11 different quote unquote Russian regions. Um, I mean, you know, arrests taking place within kind of Russian territories. And I mean, it's interesting because you typically don't see that, right? You really Alex? don't I mean, see that often at all. Exactly. So, I mean, why do we think that that happened? Well, in the Russian language cyber criminal landscape, it's fairly typical, kind of like a code of honor for them not to target Russian organizations. 
And so I can see, uh, you know, a scenario where if these threat actors had been targeting overtly Russian organizations, then they might be more at risk of being targeted and, you know, actually having that uh, law enforcement action actually being followed through. Yeah, it's it's kind of unknown right now exactly why, um, you know, like why why right now, right why right this instant that this whole operation took place. Um, and that and that's the same thing that these um, people on the forums were saying as well. They they weren't sure if it was just because they were targeting, you know, Russian institutions or or what. But um, you know, according to the FSB release, uh, the press release for the arrests, uh, they say that the you know the infrastructure has been taken down by the group. So if you think about it, that's 90 different online stores that are selling you know, uh, credit card and debit card information that have now been taken offline. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big, pretty big chunk um, of, of stuff that's been kind of made, you know, irrelevant now. So that's going to be it for us for this week. Uh, be sure to check out all the links within the show notes. Uh, let's wrap up with something, uh, you know, just a little bit on the lighter side. Uh, Casey, there was an interesting news story that you came across this week and shared with us earlier. Yeah, I absolutely love this. Uh, so we have an advanced persistent cow ava- or in Florida right now. Um, this cow has been on the loose in South Florida for two months. Uh, it keeps on evading police officers and other ranchers. So, I mean, maybe some of our threat actors can get some tips from this cow. It's an APC. An APC. <laughs> advanced persistent cow. It's amazing. <laughs> what, uh, what, yeah. would the, what would the name be? What, what are we going to name the APC? Ooh, that's good. The mad cow? Uh, no, I feel like we already had a run with that with meat a few years ago. Yeah. Um, something bovine? Yeah, something bovine. That's what I was thinking. Belligerent bovine. Oh, I like that. Or, uh, what about brisket bovine? Bris- b- bovine brisket? Isn't that kind of redundant? They're both brisket. One's, one's alive and one's dead, though. Different stages. Of- <laughs> Isn't brisket technically a specific cut of the meat, though? Yeah. Doesn't it come from the bovine, though? Yeah, it comes from the front part of the bovine. What about belligerent brisket? Ooh, Ooh. oh, I like that. I like it. We found a good compromise. Okay, great. Well, that is a good news story, which we will also link in the show notes. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Alex, for joining this week. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you next week.